You know, one of the things that's very different about Thanksgiving, I don't want to make it over dramatic, but one of the things that's very different about Thanksgiving nowadays than maybe even 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, is that these days when you get together with family, everybody has a smartphone. And you can get on that smartphone at any time and check Twitter and check scores. I looked around. I was sitting on the couch at uh, my in-law's house up in Michigan this past week, and I looked around at one point, and um, not to indict anyone, but my wife and her two brother-in-laws and my father-in-law were all sitting around me on the couch, and all of them had their smartphones out looking at them. And, of course, in, in righteousness, I was un- appalled that they would do such a thing. Of course, the only reason that I looked up was the reason I looked up was because I'd just been looking down at my smartphone. So it had been all five of us. That's all, the only way I noticed that they were on their smartphones at that particular moment. But it's amazing how fully these days our lives are dependent on technology um, to function. Now, I don't know that a smartphone's a need necessarily, but it's becoming a greater and greater uh, part of our lives. Just a few years ago, we somehow managed to exist without a cell phone. And now, if I leave the house, one of the first things I do is check my pockets, okay, wallet, keys, cell phone. And if I don't have my cell phone, I get kind of panicky about the whole experience of leaving my house because I feel like I need to have it with me all the time. You know, and there are people that bemoan technology and its advancement in our lives, and then there are other people that celebrate it and think it's a a wonderful thing. And it's crazy to imagine what it'll be like even, you know, 10 years down the road. Uh, What sort of technology will be in our lives that right now we're not even fully aware that it exists or how important that technology will be to us in just a few years. And I was doing some reading this week. And there's an area of technological advancement that has always seemed kind of out there and far-fetched, but actually uh, recently has become a greater and greater uh, reality, and there's real potential for this to become a normal part of our lives. And, And that technological advancement is virtual reality. Now, of course, if if you're in here and and you watched Star Trek you know about virtual reality. I mean, the holodeck was a huge part of... How, any Trekkies in here? Yeah, I wouldn't admit it either, so it's fair enough. Um, but the basic idea in virtual reality is that, uh, you know, you, you either step into a room as a, Yes, thank you. You either step into a room that, you know, presents a different, another reality, or you put a mask on that shows you another reality. And it's through this technology that you're able to experience something that you wouldn't normally be able to experience. Uh, It's a full media absorption, okay? And I actually have a picture of one of the most advanced virtual reality headsets. And uh, this company was bought by Facebook recently, the company that makes this mask, for $2 billion dollars. And so they obviously have significant plans for this type of technology in the future, and it kind of makes me scared to think what those might be. Um, One of the interesting things about virtual reality technology, really about any technological advancement, is there are people who 
like to philosophize and to think what will be the impact, what's the future sort of sociological impact of this technology for our culture and for our society. Uh, There are some people that are projecting that virtual reality, like this mask and, and other virtual reality experiences, that these things will have a greater and greater impact in our lives in the coming years. Uh, There's some people that are saying that in the future, virtual reality and these sort of second lives that we live in this virtual space will eclipse the time that we spend in real reality. I shouldn't have to say that, right? But in genuine you know, feet-on-the-ground reality, we'll actually spend more of our lives in this virtual reality than in genuine reality. And there are some movies, there are some science fiction books that consider the possibility of a world where we can't tell the difference between virtual reality and genuine life. It's so integrated in our lives that, that we can't tell the difference at all. Now, most of us probably aren't wrapped up in virtual reality at this point to that extent, and hopefully most of us won't be wrapped up in it to that extent at any point in our lives. Although, Facebook is kind of a weird augmented reality, you know, that a lot of people experience. And honestly, I think that's kind of a step in the direction toward a, a virtual reality that we experience in daily life. Most of us aren't wrapped up in, in it to this extent where we're wearing a mask like this. But I have to tell you that every single person in here who's a believer in Jesus Christ, every day of your life, you are getting up and you are fighting to view reality correctly. You are fighting to see genuine reality as it's described and as it's given in the pages of Scripture. It's a constant battle for us to not live in a virtual reality that is presented to us by the world, by the flesh, by our own self-centeredness. The fact of the matter is is that our flesh, our sinful nature, wants us to believe and live as if it's real that we are the center of the universe, that you and I are the focal point of everything that exists. And that's the reality that is presented to us every single day of our lives. And we have to battle against that. The world system is trying to present a virtual reality to you that reinforces your self-centered focus. This reality that they are presenting and that's within your heart already, that virtual reality is trying to keep you from the reality that's presented in the pages of Scripture. What are some ways that that happens every single day? Well, some of you get up every day, and I would put myself in this, you get up every morning and you fight against anxiety, against fear, and against worry. That's a virtual reality. It's like a mask that gets attached to your brain and your way of seeing the world. And you have to get up every single day and you have to fight against that. You have to try to rip that mask off with the truths of Scripture. That virtual reality tells you Listen, the way things really are is that God isn't in control and He really doesn't actually love you. He doesn't. And He really isn't working everything together for your good. 
That's a way of seeing the world that gets into our souls and we constantly find ourselves asking questions like, what if? Oh no, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens? And it's a way of seeing the world. It's incredibly damaging to our souls. Some of you toy with sexual sin in thought or action. It's a virtual reality mask that you put on every day or every week or every month. And you've placed it firmly over your eyes. And you honestly think that there won't be consequences for this. You honestly think that this, this thought or this action or this sexual pursuit will be more satisfying than the way God has ordained that sexuality work and the way God has ordained that we should be holy people before Him. That virtual reality mask has blinded you to the truth that pursuing sexuality outside of God's design is damaging, dissatisfying, and completely unhelpful. You've constructed a morality based on your own desires and not the truth that is presented in Scripture. Some of you get up every day and you work very, very hard to try to get God to approve of you. You try to get Him to like you that day. Your virtual reality is a place where God exists with a perpetual frown on His face. He's not fun-loving. He doesn't enjoy you. He's frustrated with you as a believer all the time. You, you perceive God as a little bit on the sour side every day when you get up. And that fills your vision. You operate in this reality that you always feel like you have to do good in order to get God to like you, in order to get Him to approve of you. That's a reality that has failed to grasp the grace of God and the kindness of our God and the fact that He's so good that He sings over His beloved children. That's real reality as presented in Scripture. So this morning... I want to take you to a passage in Colossians chapter 3 that hopefully will, will present reality as it genuinely is for believers. And I want to try to help you this morning to rip off that virtual reality mask that you're wearing today and that you're going you're gonna to try to put on in your sinfulness this coming week. Whether it's anxiety, lust, fear, bitterness, worry, or a host of other masks that you put on this week. I want to help you this morning to take those and smash them with the truths of Scripture. And the book of Colossians is going to be incredibly helpful for us in this pursuit. So Colossians chapter 3 and verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to be looking at this morning specifically. But we'll flip all over the book of Colossians. Now, as we study these verses today, I want to put on the screen a sentence that I think summarizes what we're going to see out of these verses, uh, to me, pretty clearly, and hopefully clearly to you as well. All right, so here's what we're going to see today. We must daily experience our new reality in Christ rather than the old reality of this world. Okay, now, very simple statement, I think. Some of you are like, okay, duh, like that's true. Yes, that's what I want to happen that's what I'm fighting for every single day. I want to believe. I want to see reality as it really is, as God has presented it. But the truths that support this statement that we find in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, are incredibly profound. And 
they're soul-enriching truths that will help us to see reality as God presents it in Scripture. And so really, there's only, there's only two points that we're going to look at this morning. You'll see these on the screen. First of all, we're going to look at your reality. Okay? So I want to take the mask off, and I want to describe reality to you as Scripture presents it. And then the second point is I want to, based on that reality, I want to tell you what your responsibilities are. Actually, the Holy Spirit through Paul is going to tell us what our responsibilities are in light of the reality we live in. Right? Because we don't have that virtual reality mask on, because we have this reality, this is the way we see the world. Here's how we should live in light of that. Now, you can see the verses that go with these are kind of jumbled up there. And basically what you have is a sandwich here in this text. And I think you'll see this as we go through it. You start and end with these statements, the outer pieces of this sandwich. These statements give us the foundation, the motivation. They give us the reason for the commands that are given in the middle. So outer pieces are motivation, the foundation. Inner piece is the, the, the meat in the middle there is the commands, is the here's how you work this out in your daily lives. And the connection between these two pieces, these two points is, when you begin to understand your reality, now these responsibilities begin to naturally work themselves out in your daily life. And of course it's natural, but it's also effort. And it's, it's, it's gut-wrenching every single morning, getting up and thinking correctly and putting on the right reality for your life. So let's start with point number one, your reality. I want to present your reality if you're in Christ this morning. Let's look at verse number one. If then you have been raised with Christ. We'll stop there. The first thing that we need to notice about this, if you're jumping right in the middle here, is that when you read this, it feels like you're jumping in the middle of a conversation that's been going on. It feels like you're starting in chapter 5 of this 10-chapter novel. It's like you're right in the middle of this thing. And what, what you need to see here is, I think Paul is actually drawing a conclusion from what he's been previously arguing in the book of Colossians. All right, so if that's the case, what has Paul been arguing in the book of Colossians in the first two chapters up to this point? Well, fundamentally, I think what Paul is doing is I think he's drawing, in Colossians, a contrast. Okay, There are two ways of perceiving reality that he wants us to understand. And I think that's what he's doing. He's instructing us in two visions of reality in the book of Colossians. Right? One vision is summarized in chapter 2 of Colossians. In fact, why don't you flip back a page if you need to, and look at chapter 2 and verse 8, okay? This would be one way of describing, of, of seeing reality, all right? Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now notice the way Paul describes these these philosophies, these ways of seeing the world, this reality that you put on. How does he describe them? He says that they are earthly. He says that they're merely human. 
these realities that he's fighting against are based on the logic that mankind has apart from God, right? This is what human thinking looks like apart from the character and the word of God. Now, look down at verse 20, and he kind of gets back to his argument here, and he he draws it to a close before getting into chapter 3, okay? Verse 20, he says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, this way of seeing the world that's earthly, that's human logic based, all right? If you've died with this, and you have if you're in Christ, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, all right? And so he's talking about this very earthly way of seeing religion, of seeing humanity, All of this is very, very earthly, very human-centered, and this way of seeing the world says that there are all these regulations that we need to put in place so that that we can restrain our flesh. Look at the regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These man-made rules that they have here, this philosophy, this human-centered philosophy, these man-made rules that they have are so typical. This is so normal of earthly religions. I mean, this is what a religion apart from Christ has to come to. Hey, we need to regulate our desires with these man-made rules, try to function this way. And really, these regulations don't do anything to restrain your fleshly desires. This is not where you need to go if you want to live in genuine reality. Look at verse 23. These, these regulations, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So basically, chapter 2 tells you You need to avoid the earthly way of seeing reality and of being in the world. Now, chapter 3 tells us the opposite side. So avoid this, and here's how you need to approach reality. As believers in Christ, this is how we exist every single day, how we should exist. So, if in chapter 3, in verse 1, if he's saying, if you have been raised with Christ... If he's making a contrast with the old reality, so if this is our reality, if you and I have been raised with Christ, this is where we live, we need to understand what he means by that. I mean, what is he talking about there? What does he mean to be raised with Christ? That's kind of strange language for us there. Before we can understand what it means for you and I to be raised with Christ... We need to understand, first and foremost, what exactly happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? I mean, what happened? What really went on when Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, I want you to think of the whole of Scripture in terms of a story, okay? And every good English teacher knows that a story has certain elements that make up every single story. So think of Scripture like this. God creates the world. He speaks the world into existence in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's a very, very good creation. Everything's good. 
He gives mankind the task of ruling over his creation and making this creation a suitable dwelling place for God and man. Okay? That is the setting. Right? Good English term there. Okay? That's the setting of the story. That's where all of this is going to play out. Okay? Now, the conflict of the story enters almost immediately. You get to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve choose to sin. They corrupt God's good creation. So there's conflict in this story. Every good story has conflict. If you tell a story to my kids without conflict, they want another story. You need conflict in the story. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Now, Adam and Eve will not be able to fulfill God's commands for them. They won't be able to effectively rule over creation and make it a place where God and man can dwell together. Neither would any of their offspring. But God, the great storyteller, is not going to have his creation corrupted forever. Instead, he sets in motion a plan to restore his creation back to goodness and to wholeness. And so the plan of God is to create a new creation, a new creational kingdom. That's the end of the story. And that new creational kingdom is where man and God are going to dwell together. Why don't you go ahead and turn over to Revelation 21. I want you to see this, okay? Revelation 21. I want to read this to you. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. This is the end of the story, okay? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death, the conflict that entered in Genesis 3, shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then this is awesome here. Verse 5. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is awesome. And this is where we're headed. This is the end of the story. But listen to me carefully right now. If all of history is God's story, we know the setting We know the crisis, and we know the resolution of the crisis is a new creation. But our God tells stories like no other. And here's the greatest plot twist of all in God's story. The end of the story, the new creational kingdom, has broken into the middle of the story. It's already happened. The end of the story has already come. 2,000 years ago, right outside of Jerusalem, on a Sunday morning, the new creational kingdom of God broke into the middle of God's story. It happened early. 
It came. The new creational kingdom is here with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A man who had been put to death under the judgment of God for sin was raised to life and became the very first participant in the new creational kingdom of God. He broke the power of the curse of death that was laid down in Genesis chapter 3. He broke the authority of the old creation. He was raised to walk in newness of life. And the new creation began with him. Listen to these words from Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The new creation starts with Him, that in all things, everything, He might be preeminent. So what does that have to do with us? What does that have to do with us? That's marvelous. But what does that have to do with us? Well, there's a doctrine in Scripture that I hope you know. I hope you've been taught this somewhere along the line. I hope you've not overlooked the doctrine of our union with Christ. It's so fundamental to salvation. This is what's happening in our salvation. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 3 in Colossians. If then you have been raised with Christ. All over Paul's letters in the New Testament, you see little phrases like, in Christ, with Christ. Those are used over and over again. And a lot of times we just ignore the prepositions. I mean, they can't really be all that important. Oh, they're important. They're significant here. They're so significant. Because what this doctrine of union with Christ is telling us is that you and I have been joined to Jesus Christ. And now we participate and we reap the benefits of the work that He did. We've been united with Him. You know the verse well on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united with Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We don't have time to get to it right now, but go back this afternoon and read Ephesians chapter 1. Read the whole thing. And look for this prepositional phrase, in Christ. See how the benefits of your salvation come to you only because you've been united with Jesus Christ. Now, in Colossians 3, look down at verses 3 and 4. So we've been raised with Christ to walk in new creational life. But look at verse 3. Here's the other side of the sandwich. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. All of the climactic moments of Christ's work are mentioned here. His death, His resurrection, His ascension to glory, His return to receive His church to Himself. They're all mentioned, and we are mentioned along with Jesus Christ. We participate in His work. We get the benefits of His work because we're united with Him by faith. We died to the old creation, to the old reality, 
And we've been raised to the new creation right now. It's already happened to you if you're a believer in Christ. And it's just like Paul was arguing in chapter 2, the old way of life no longer has authority over you because a realm, a kingdom, can't have authority over a dead person. You just can't. You have died to that. You've died to that way of seeing reality and you've been raised with Christ to a different way of seeing reality. Look at what verse 3 says. It says our lives are hidden with Christ. I mean, this makes sense, right? You can't, you've not fully entered your new creational physical body yet. And that's coming later on. But right now, your, your new creational life is hidden with Christ in God. But that doesn't make our participation in the new creational kingdom any less real or any less significant. Verse 4 tells us that when Christ appears, all of it will be culminated, all of it will be consummated, and we will receive our new bodies and we will fully enter the new creational kingdom with Him one day. All of it will be completed in the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, that's some big, big talk. But listen, that's your reality. That's where you and I live. This week, when you go back to your job after Thanksgiving, that's where we live. And it's so significant that we let Scripture shape the way we think and we think consistently about our union with Christ. You want to know what the most unreal aspect of this union with Christ is? We didn't do anything to earn this, to deserve this. This is pure and total gift of God to you and I. He did all the work. You and I collect the benefits of it, day in and day out. Beginning to understand this doctrine of union with Christ is a little bit like finding out that your rich uncle who you barely knew passed away and left you $100 million. Now, don't everybody start thinking about what you would do with that right now, but imagine that. That would change the way you perceive reality, I think. And when you begin to understand that you've been united with Jesus Christ, you've died to the old world, the old way of life, and you've been raised into a new creational kingdom, should change the way you perceive reality. It reworks our understanding of this present life. It's like a little kid tasting chocolate for the first time. You just can't go back once that has happened. Life is different at that point. That's what happens here. Life is different. When you begin to understand this, you can't go back. Perceive reality as it is. Now, this is a wonderful doctrine. It's an amazing doctrine. And there's so much that you could study in Scripture having to do with union with Christ. But this doctrine has to shape our daily experiences. Listen, I can go and I can read books about gardening. I can talk to friends who garden, which I don't, and try to figure out how to garden. I can buy equipment and have it sitting in my shed or in my basement. I can go online and listen to lectures on gardening. But I will not actually learn how to garden unless I use the principles that I've learned in the real world. 
I take all that I've gleaned from books and from lectures and I start to do actual digging on a real piece of land and I fight real insects who are trying to destroy my plants. And Paul understands that here. And so he gives you this this view of your reality if you've been raised with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Here's reality. Okay, now, the second thing we're going to talk about this morning is putting the gardening to work. Your responsibility. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's what flows out of that. Now, back in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, there's two commands given here in verses 1 and 2. You don't have to shout them out. You can look for them for a second. The two commands are seek and set. Okay? Seek and set. Easy to remember. All right? Paul summarizes like a good captain, sending his men into battle, giving them final instructions. Here's what you do. Let me boil it down to you. Boom, boom. Seek and set. And I want you to notice, when he says these things, both of these commands have a direction to them. All right? Look. Seek the things that are above It's a different realm. It's a different world. It's a different reality. Set your mind on things that are above. It's the new creational kingdom. That's where we set and seek. I want to flesh these out a little bit for you. What's going on with these commands here? First of all, seek the things that are above. Seeking means, it's just talking about our desires. It's talking about what motivates you to action. It's what you really want deep down in your soul. What drives you? What are you going after? One author explains the way we work as humans in this way. Put a quote on the screen here. What distinguishes us as individuals, but also as peoples, is not whether we love, but what we love. At the heart of our being is a kind of love pump that can never be turned off not even by sin or the fall. Rather, the effect of sin on our love pump is to knock it off kilter, misdirecting it and getting it aimed at the wrong things. Listen, you and I all love, okay? Um, the, the, The Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, should have been All You Need Is Love aimed in the right direction. Because everybody loves, that's what we do as humans. We desire, we want, we love, we pursue things. The question is, what is your love aimed at? What are you desiring? And Paul tells us in Colossians 3 that one of the primary ways we flesh out this new reality is having our desires aimed in the right direction. What direction is that? Well, look at the rest of verse 1. Seek the things that are above. Here's where your desires are aimed. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Our love is aimed at the heavenly realm where Christ is. It's aimed at Him. Why? Because He is the object of our desire that that no other object can satisfy like. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Listen to this. Right after Paul tells us about those philosophies and empty deceits, that false view of reality, this is what he says about Christ. This is why you desire the heavenly realm. This is why you desire Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
He has it all. He has everything. He's holiness and justice and grace and mercy and peace and wrath and kindness and goodness. He's all of it. And He is the one who can satisfy. And so we aim our desires toward the realm where He is. And it's not just the realm where He is, but look what the rest of verse 1 says. It's the realm where He is, and it's the realm where He's seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? What's an allusion back to the Psalms? Psalm 110, which is a psalm where David talks about the Messiah and how God will exalt the Messiah and put all of His enemies under His feet. And so this realm where Christ is, this new creational kingdom that Christ has inaugurated at His resurrection, this is a place where Jesus Christ is honored and exalted. This is a place where He reigns supreme. And so for those who've been united with Christ, for those who've experienced this new creational resurrection with Christ, for those who have experienced that, they want nothing more than for Christ to be exalted, for Him to be seen as King, and for Him to put all His enemies under His feet. The honor of Christ defines the realm above. And it must define our lives below. One commentator summarized this so well, I just had to put it up here. The Colossian Christians have already participated in the world to come. That's your reality. The powers of the new age have broken in upon them. They already participate in the resurrection life of Christ. Thus, their aims, ambitions, indeed their whole orientation is to be directed to this sphere. So what does that look like in daily life? This week, when you get back to the grind... What does it look like to desire Christ in this way? Well, it means living in a way that shows I'm a part of a kingdom where Jesus Christ is honored and exalted above all. He is king. It means loving people who aren't in my normal group. It means being kind and compassionate. It means giving of my time to cultivate relationships within the church. It means doing good to neighbors and friends and coworkers. It means working my job hard. It means loving my kids sacrificially. It means coming to church and singing with all that I have because this Christ is worthy of my highest desire, my greatest passion. It means sitting under the Word week in and week out because I just want to hear about this King. I want to learn about Him so that my heart will desire Him more and more and so that the chains of the old reality will be broken in my life over time. So we're to seek the honor and glory of Christ. But the second command Paul gives here is how we, we flesh that out. So if we've got the, the outer, the seeking, okay, now we've got the inner, the setting. Verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above not on things that are on earth. If we really want Christ to be exalted in our lives, in the way that we live our lives, then we have to set our minds on this heavenly realm where Christ is. John Owen was a 
an amazing Puritan author, and he said this, Make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. There you go. What's the greatest thing you can do this week? Part of your time this week ought to be spent doing this. Setting your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. I just want to make it clear here that what Paul's not saying, he's not saying to ignore physical life here, okay? He's not saying that this sort of like weird spirituality that's disconnected from your your functional life here on earth. He's he's not saying to enter into this sort of monastic um, spirituality that separates from everything physical and everything earthly. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not saying to ignore your job, to ignore your country, to ignore the food that you eat. He's not saying that at all. What he is telling you is that the way that you live within the world that you're in now must be determined by the realm above. I mean, look what Paul says in Colossians 3, a couple of verses later. Verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, I mean, word and deed, that's, that's all that we do. That's daily life. That's everything. That's eating. That's drinking. That's talking. That's working. It's all of it. In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 23, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, what Paul says is he rejects thinking that is centered on any realm, on any reality, on any philosophy where Jesus Christ is not Lord. He rejects that. And so we have to raise our eyes above the fleshly, self-centered reality that we live in so much of the time. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 1.28, this is my ministry methodology. What does he do? Him we proclaim. We talk about Christ. We preach Christ. Because he is the reality that we're seeking and he is the reality that we're setting our minds upon. We think on his character. Go back and read Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20 sometime and get a full dose of who Jesus Christ is and enjoy that and think on that for a while, on that reality. So, verses 1 through 4 here, they function as this great hinge on a giant door. They connect the truths about Christ And the commands that he gives us, that Paul gives us here to seek and to set, they connect these things to the nitty-gritty details of life, okay? And here's what I mean by that. Look down at verse 5, all right? So you've gotten all this theology, you've gotten seek your desires, set your mind. Okay, so here's what you do. Verse 5, some more practical wisdom from Paul. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, right? Whatever is of the realm below, put that to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. See that? You were living in them. That was your reality. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self 
which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's this realm that we're a part of, that we set our affections on, that we set our minds on. So if verses, if chapter 3, verses 5 through basically the end of the chapter, if that gives us the muscle, the activity that we do, verses 1 through 4 give us the blood that provides oxygen to that muscle. You can't just read these commands in verses 3 or verses 5 through the end of the chapter and say, ooh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. That sounds good. Can't do it. You have to connect it to the blood and the oxygen, which is given in verses 1 through 4. I mentioned probably several times in here that my family, three young children, we love stories. And one of the things that we love is to read good Bible stories. And there are several children's Bible books that we enjoy very much. And one of those that it probably is our favorite is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And I'm sure some of you are familiar with it and, and you've read parts of it. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Um, because of what we've just seen here from Paul about seeking, desiring Christ, and setting our minds on Christ and who he is, I thought it would be appropriate to end this morning by reading you a little section from the Jesus Storybook Bible. All right? Now, this is the intro. This is telling you what the Bible's about. So I'm going to read this to you. Hopefully I can make it through it. This is what you need to be seeking and setting this week in the pages of Scripture, all right? Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But, as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the ones he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. 